Welcome, folks, to PEN American Center's annual celebration of especially noteworthy work by poets, playwrights, essayists, novelists, translators, and editors. I'm Joel Canero, PEN's president, and I'm here, as I suspect you are, because you admire language that is crafted with unusual distinction. When I was a very green freshman in college, fresh out of a county high school in Florida that nobody ever confused with Phillips Exeter, I handed in a paper on a third-rate writer, which ended with these words. This is far and away the very finest writer or author which I have ever had the privilege of ever having read during my entire life, bar none. <laughs> I still had a southern accent back then. The paper came back with the professor's meticulous script in the margin, just two words, read more. <laughs> well, I took him at his word, and this is where it's gotten me, standing here in front of a, a group of fellow bibliomaniacs. Um, I love books. I write them, I read them, I write in them, I write about them, I borrow them, I lend them, I uh, think about them, I take them to bed with me, I dream about them. Books are wonderful. They don't shout into cell phones on trains. They never ask to borrow money. They don't call at inconvenient times. I should also say that I also love plays and I love beautifully edited journals. I've never had one of my own books nominated for a prize and I envy all of you who have been given this distinction, whether you take home the silver or the gold medal. Uh, you have been chosen by a distinguished panel of your peers, and I offer you all my very warm congratulations. I have been on a jury, or two, or seven, or eight, and I know just how much time and effort goes into the process, and so I want to salute with especially robust thanks all of those wonderful people who have been on our juries this year and who have identified this year's honored writers. I also express heartfelt thanks to those who have underwritten these awards, and you will see uh, an explanation on the back of the program. Um, two of our very special friends are here tonight, uh, Barbara Diamondstein uh, Spielvogel, who with Carl Spielvogel, uh, has uh, underwritten the uh, award in essay. And uh, Gerald Wheels, who was my colleague at Penn, that's the one with two N's, uh, had much to do with setting up the award for Nora Magid for editing. Nora Magid was herself a brilliant editor, one of the most extraordinary people I've ever known. So I offer special thanks and a welcome to Barbara uh, and to Gerald. Michael Robert, Penn's gifted executive director, and Peter Mayer, among others on the staff, have worked hard tonight to make it happen, and I salute them. And I salute all of you for being here to make this such a joyful occasion. And now it's my pleasure to welcome the chairman of our awards committee, uh, who will serve as our master of ceremonies, 
Ben Taylor, as it happens, is a master of prose, having written, among other things, a prize-winning novel, Tales Out of School, and uh, Into the Open, a brilliant book about genius. He came to New York a few years ago from St. Louis, where he was a teacher, and it's clear that Washington University's loss was the new school university's gain. So it's a um, great pleasure to welcome the chairman of our Committee on Awards, Benjamin Taylor. Thank you, Joel. I want to begin on behalf of the awards committee by thanking this year's very distinguished jurors. When called upon to serve, Cincinnatus dropped his plow and went. Our panelists have been old Romans of that same stripe. Despite busy lives and acreage of their own to till, these gifted men and women have given selflessly of their time. The distinction of the awards we confer today is owing to the thoroughness and scrupulousness of their deliberations. All were asked to read many hundreds of pages. Some were asked to read thousands. We are boundlessly grateful to them for their dedication, their energies, their high intelligence, and their disinterested judgment. The first group of prizes we present honors the art of literary translation, the importance of which is self-evident to all of us here this evening. But the art of literary translation is the most invisible art, taken for granted all too often by readers. We at Penn know that we depend on translators to bridge languages and cultures, and because we are grateful to have English language versions of books we cannot read in the original, we present the following awards, starting with the 41st annual Penn Book of the Month Club Translation Prize. This award, founded in 1963, was American Penn's first award, and was also the first prize given by writers in the United States to recognize excellence in literary translation. Uh, it is my pleasure now and honor to introduce the translator, Marion Schwartz, who will announce the finalists and read the citation. Mary. I've served on many juries, but it was an, a special honor to serve on this one, and especially enjoyable. We received uh, over 200 entries for this title. My co-judges were uh, also a joy to work with. They were both distinguished translators themselves, Howard Goldblatt, who translates from Chinese, and Arthur Goldhammer, who translates from the French. Um, it was also a pleasure because the overall quality, well, perhaps not the overall quality, but the quality of many of the books was exceptionally high. There were many books, more than one at least, more than three that will be honored tonight that were, could seriously have won this prize. It's, it's a very good time for translation in that respect. I'd first like to um, tell you about the finalists. They are first Linda Coverdale for her translation from the French of This Blinding Absence of Light by Tahar Benjaloun. The other finalist is Claire Kavanaugh for her translation from the Polish of 
non-required reading by Vyslava Shimborska. Uh, Linda, I believe, is here in the audience, and I'd like to ask her to stand and be recognized. Linda? Yes? The finalist for the prize for the 2003 Pen Book of the Month Club Translation Prize is R.W. Flint for his gorgeous translation from the Italian of The Moon and the Bonfires by Cesar Pavese. And I'd like to read the citation. The citation for the other two finalists, and I see also for this, are in the program, but I would like to read uh, this one to you. In his seamless translation of Cesar Pavese's The Moon and the Bonfires, R.W. Flint resurrects one of Italy's major post-war novels and reintroduces its, reintroduces its author to the English-speaking world more than half a century after Pavese's suicide in 1950. Called by some the poet of the disenfranchised, in this, his greatest novel, Pavese evokes the futility of reconstructing one's past while exposing the bankrupt legacy of fascism in post-war Italy. It is a sometimes violent work of fiction that in its unraveling of the decades the narrator has been away from his hometown reveals a lost past and a meaningless present. Frequently referred to as an Americanist in Italy, which he never left, Pavese conflates the concepts of place and personal identity as his narrator, a foundling, returns from America to find that the past he longs for is denied him. Oscillating between spare narration and lyricism, The Moon and the Bonfires is a novel of extraordinary power and beauty that showcases the skills of a master translator. Now to uh, give the award, I'd like to introduce Mel Parker, who is the Senior Vice President and Editorial Director of Bookspan. Thanks, Mary. In 1963, the Book of the Month Club began its long, happy association with Penn's Translation Prize. As the club's editorial director, I'm enormously gratified that this award has endured, fundamentally unchanged, its high literary standards intact for four decades. The ongoing circulation of literary works through different languages, nations, cultures, and time periods is the lifeblood that sustains literature itself. While their efforts are all too often unheralded and unrewarded, Translators are the force that keep that circulation going. At a time of many ominous cultural barriers, it's a particular pleasure to pay a well-earned tribute to the winner and finalist for this year's Penn Book of the Month Club Translation Prize. Robert Flint is unable to be with us tonight, but we're fortunate that his editor at New York Review of Books, Edwin Frank, is here to accept the award on his behalf. Mr. Flint's previous translations of Pavese's work was hailed by the late Leslie Fielder as absolutely lucid and completely incantatory. I'm sure Mr. Fiedler would feel the same way about this latest translation. Mr. Frank deserves our thanks, too, since he had the wisdom to bring this wonderful book to an American audience. And so I'm delighted to present him with the 2003 Penn Book of the Month Club Translation Prize for R.W. Flint's extraordinary translation of The Moon and the Bonfires.
Well, I'm very pleased and, of course, very honored uh, to accept this Penn Book of the Month Club Award on behalf of Robert Flint for his translation of Cesare Pavese's The Moon and the Bonfires. Um, and, of course, Mr. Flint has asked me to convey his own delight and gratitude at uh, receiving this honor. The award seems especially appropriate since Pavese is not only one of the masters of modern Italian literature, too little known for too long in the U.S., but he's also one of its master translators from the English and especially from the American. It's Pavese who gave uh, his countrymen the gift of Melville, Stein, Hemingway, and quite a number of other American writers. The other thing I want to tell you um, is that the very existence of this, of Mr. Flint's translation of the Moon and Bonfires is something of a miracle. Mr. Flint started translating Pavese in the 60s when he published uh, a fine selection from Pavese's writings. And he then went on, drawn more and more into Bavese's world, to tackle the moon and the bonfires. But when he approached a publisher about the work, he was brushed off with something like, who needs another lyrical novel by a goddamn Italian pinko? <laughs> well, lyrical novels by Italian pinkos are the sorts of things that we like at New York Review of Books. And uh, so when Mr. Flint told me that he just happened to have a complete translation of Pavese's greatest work, The Moon and the Bonfires, in his desk drawer, where it had been lying for over 30 years, I begged him to send it to me. And a few days later, received in the mail a clean typescript on tattered yellow pages of onion, skip, onion skin paper, the only evidence of, of all his work, but happily not any longer. So once again, on the part of Mr. Flint and of New York Review Books, many, many thanks. The Penn Award for Poetry and Translation uh, is um, an award created to honor translators of poetry and judged by a poet translator. This year, Amiel Alkali, created in 1996 through a bequest to, from, uh, to Penn from translator Ray Dalvin. The award is now sustained through a generous grant from the Kaplan Foundation. Uh, it's my pleasure to call Amiel Alkali to the podium now to present the award. Thank you. Um, it's a pleasure to announce the awards this year and to have judged them. Um, the finalists are Lawrence Venuti for Breath, Poems and Letters by Antonia Pozzi, Richard Seaberth for Emblems of Desire, Selections from the Deli of Maurice Seve, Kent Johnson and Forrest Gander for Imminent Visitor, Selected Poems of Jaime Sáenz, and you have the citations in your programs. If any of the translators are here, could they please stand? The Pen Translation Award goes to Khaled Matawa for his translation of Without an Alphabet, Without a Face, Selected Poems of Saadi Youssef. And you have, again, the citation in your, in your programs, which was uh, pre-war prose. And I'm going to add some editorial comments to my uh, introduction to Khaled Matawa. 
American intellectuals have failed miserably in conveying solidarity with Arab writers struggling against myriad forms of repression from one party rule to military occupation. The few gains that have been made here in academic scholarship and general awareness are now under full-fledged assault by radical right-wing ideologues and protectors of the American smokescreens and fog factories that hijack our own logic and common sense about the difference between victims and oppressors, occupiers and liberators, kids with stones and soldiers with bulldozers and tanks. Saadi Youssef, poet from Iraq, author of over 40 volumes of work, prose and poetry and criticism, and known in most parts of the world outside these United States, is not someone I suspect welcome in the new free Iraq. But neither is he officially welcome in the United States. We had invited him to appear at the People's Poetry Gathering in April, but his visa request was denied. It is imperative that as critics, editors, and publishers, as many other people have voiced this evening, we take a vocal and aggressive stand to enable the free flow of people, ideas, and texts. And of course, translation is a key element to this. And while we should be dismayed and even outraged at the absence of even the possibility of considering having someone like Saadi Yusuf appear at an event like this, we should welcome and celebrate the presence of Khaled Matawa with us tonight, a superb poet and translator and recipient, I'm very happy to say, of the 2003 Penn Translation Award for Poetry. Khaled. This is the real deal. Um, I'd like to thank uh, Saleh Altoma, uh, professor of Arabic at Indiana University, for being helpful with uh, corrections. David Baker, Ann Townsend, Chris Green for reading over the English text. Naomi Shihab Nye for uh, proposing the text to uh, Gray Wolf. Uh, Fiona McRae for accepting it. And Chef, uh, Jeff Schatz for being a meticulous and hardworking editor. Uh, Saadi Yusuf is uh, an Iraqi pinko, uh, to pick up on Pavesi. And uh, I think, I'm hoping that uh, this book's selection is larger than a matter of timeliness and that it is the beginning of a, a beautiful friendship and communications between Arab intellectuals and, and American intellectuals and poets. Uh, it seems like uh, much of um, the suffering that's going on uh, in the region uh, has really been because of a, uh, a lot of the voices like Saadi's were not heard and were not being allowed to uh, come across these distances. And in fact, um, it would have served everyone right if uh, his voice had been allowed to be heard at the time he was speaking. We're now getting him in retrospect somehow. But uh, I hope uh, uh, the exchange will continue, and uh, I thank the uh, uh, Penn Group for the award. Thank you very much. The Penn Ralph Mannheim Medal for translation is given every third year to honor a literary translator's exceptional career. Uh, David Lehman, poet, essayist and editor of many anthologies is here to present the award. David. It's a great honor to present the 
Penn Ralph Mannheim Medal for Translation, named, of course, after the great translator Ralph Mannheim. And uh, from Donald Keene, from his teaching at Columbia and in Tokyo, from his translations, his books, I have learned so much about Japanese literature, great things and little, that I thought it would be most appropriate to draft the citation for this honor in a Japanese form that I read about in one of his wonderful anthologies. The tanka, which is the basis of Japanese linked verse, consists of two stanzas, one in the form of a, of a haiku, uh, five, seven, and five syllable lines, and the second consisting of two seven syllable lines. So I wrote a, a double tanka in an effort to approximate the Japanese art of linked verse, which comes from the late 17th century. And uh, it's on the back of this marvelous medal that Professor Keene will receive from me. It says, to Donald Keene, we owe much of what we know of Japan's verse and prose. In shadow of rising sun stood the tree unobserved. Then keen could be heard. In accents lucid and keen, he rendered the scene. And the bare branch of winter burst into cherry blossom. <laughs> Professor Keen. I am, of course, both delighted and profoundly moved to be given this award, especially by a group of writers whose feeling for language is far superior to that of the people who generally give awards. <laughs> it's, it's customary, even traditional, when on the rare occasions when a translator is given an award to say that translators are always neglected it's often one hears the rhetorical questions such as, where would we be without Constance Garnett? Or, where would we be without Arthur Whaley? These rhetorical questions are more than that. They suggest how much we do owe to the translators of the past and, and recent times. And I'm grateful to all of my predecessors. I'm grateful to my contemporaries. I'm grateful for my students for their help and what I've been doing over the past years. Sometimes I suggest to the students that the best way to be recognized as a translator, although translators are not so often recognized, is to concentrate on very, very old works whose authors are not known. In that case, the translation will inevitably be associated with the translator rather than <laughs> with, with the work itself. Another possibility is this concentrate on, on writers whose names are extremely difficult to pronounce for speakers <laughs> of English, in which case even reviewers may find it's easier to refer to the translator than to the unpronounceably named uh, author. Even if one violates these rules and translates from a language similar to English or with the uh, not difficult for us to pronounce, I think there will be plenty of cat challenges anyway, and I hope that in the future, other translators, many other translators, are given the kind of recognition which I've been given today. Thank you.
The Penn Laura Pells Awards for Drama are a pair of awards established in 1998 with the Laura Pells Foundation to recognize American playwrights in two ways. The award to an American playwright at mid-career offers a $5,000 stipend. The award to mark the distinguished body of work of a master American dramatist is a specially commissioned art object designed by Jessica Weber. In both cases, Penn Laura Pell's Foundation honorees are writers indisputably at the highest level of achievement. Uh, it's my pleasure now to introduce Bernard Gersten, executive producer of the Lincoln Center Theater, who will present both awards. Mr. Gersten. Good evening. Nobody seems to have been struck by the fact that combining the Penn Award with Laura Pells produces Penn Pells. <laughs> On behalf of the awards judges, Tony Kushner, Terence McNally, Carrie Perloff, and consultant George Seawolf, the Mid-Career Award goes to Craig Lucas. His citation was written by Tony Kushner, and I will read it. There is a God, or there are gods. There is some meta-consciousness that rules the universe at any rate, that orders the comings and goings of human beings and the inanimate world as well, that determines whether the screws holding a balcony railing are loose or secure. This deity seems and probably is essentially just and kind, desiring only the best for her or his creations. But the deity is clearly, frighteningly error-prone, clumsy, careless. The consequences are appalling. Irrecoverable injury, unendurable suffering result. Horribly, that pain that is the consequence of divine error occasions in God and in us, not only fathomless grief, but also a rude, delicious laughter, simultaneously cruel and compassionate, a laughter that reveals a very human savoring of the suffering of others, and also, devastatingly, a capacity for recognition, and in that recognition, understanding and a sign of grace. This is the world as imagined in the plays of Craig Lucas. At least so it seems to me, one of his many devoted fans, one of the many playwrights deeply indebted to him. He is the least moralistic moral writer writing for the stage. He's made it his life's work to search out an ethics free of illusion, false certainty, and self-righteousness. His theater performs a radical rejection of the notion of blame, and yet it never sinks into relativism. It has a perfect moral center, discernible, mysterious. The best art has such centers, and we suspect that God is hiding there. Craig's plays are poems. The hope they offer is for a political transformation that does not seek to evade the inevitability of pain, grief, and death a hope predicated on the ability of human beings, his audience, to think, to empathize, and countenance loss. All this 
and he's only mid-career. Just think what he'll be writing 50 years from now. We playwrights are a waspish bunch. I mean, we're not as bad as novelists, but we suffer from competitive feelings, envy. Nevertheless, I'd wager that no American playwright, hearing the name of the recipient of this year's Pen Pels Award, felt anything other than absolute agreement as to the aptness of the choice, the importance of honoring someone who, through his work, has brought such honor to our profession. Craig Lucas is up to his ears in the production of his new play in Seattle and cannot be with us tonight. On behalf of Craig Lucas, Mary Louise Parker will accept his award. I'm very honored to be here on behalf of my favorite playwright. This is a message from Craig. <laughs> I'm imagining how these words might sound coming out of Mary Louise's mouth. And as with anything she attempts, they're seeming so perfect that I can, if only for the moment, imagine myself indeed at mid-career and not at the fag end of one. One isn't supposed to say fag, of course, even if you mean something else, but apparently I am released from this stricture as I am such a big one. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for this lovely acknowledgement. I would certainly be there in person, inundating poor Laura Pels with kisses, if I weren't in Seattle directing a new musical. The writer Larry Gelpart has famously remarked, if Hitler is still alive, one hopes he is out of town with a musical. <laughs> Please know that I am truly honored and raise a glass of sparkling non-alcoholic cider toward you from all of my torment on Puget Sound. This year's Pen Pels Award to a Master American Dramatist goes to John Guare. The citation was written by Carrie Perloff. John Guare's luminous language, outrageous imagination, and extraordinary ability to keep experimenting make him unique in today's theatrical environment. His plays have surprised, delighted, perplexed, and provoked a generation of theatergoers and have inspired dozens of younger writers to relish the fact that theater is a place where impossible things happen and happen beautifully. For his ongoing and endlessly fertile contribution to the American theater, we are delighted to confer upon John Guare both our gratitude and the Laura Pell's Master Playwrights Award. John Guare, as peripatetic as Craig Lucas, is equally not with us, being in London at the National Theater, where his stage adaptation of the film his Girl Friday is about to open at the Olivier Theater. John has asked me to convey his acceptance. This is the award, and here is John's acceptance. John says, I am so honored to receive this award from Penn, whose fidelity to writers worldwide is indispensable and from Laura Pels, whose generosity to the theater is admirable and legendary. I'd be there tonight to receive this if it were not for the best and only excuse in the world. I'm in London in rehearsals with a new piece that opens 5 June. Wish us well. I'm so pleased Bernard Gersten has agreed to do the accepting for two reasons. He's the only person I know who's as young and beautiful as Mary Louise Parker. <laughs> and since he's produced more of my plays than anybody put together, he has a profound share in my winning this prize. And to him, I am profoundly grateful. 
and make sure you read this, Bernie, and don't do any editing. <laughs> but about the master part, since I feel I'm still mid-career and Craig Lucas is a master already, what if I give half my prize to Craig and he gives me half of his? I do wish I were there with you. This is a wonderful honor and I send you my deepest greetings and appreciation. The Penn Nora Maggot Award for magazine editing honors the contribution of literary editors to the world of letters. This year's award will be presented by Oskol Melnichuk, who received the award in 2001. Oskol. When my fellow judges Pat Towers and Daphne Merkin advanced the case for Robert Fogarty in the Antioch Review, I emailed Pat Towers that there might be a conflict of interest here because while I'd met Robert only once or twice in passing, the Antioch Review was the place where in 1972, as a student at Antioch College, I interned and first learned the editor's trade. The journal was then in the hands of a man named Lawrence Grauman, himself a great editor, who made the literary life seem everything a kid from the sticks of Jer Jersey might lust after. Larry would pull up to the office around 5 p.m. in his red Porsche, chat with the departing staff, then head to the back room where he'd throw his cowboy boots onto a massive metal desk and start making phone calls. Mainly, he phoned his buddies back east. Sidney Zion and Victor Novosky were part of his inner circle, as I recall or he'd spar with Charles Newman about a sentence in a 70-page essay the review was publishing. In those last days of hot type, every word counted. And I thought to myself, I'd like that, the publishing life. Though whether I was thinking of the Porsche, the cowboy boots, or the fabled friends back east, I no longer recall. But while Larry may have misled me slightly about the superficial emoluments of the business, he did leave me with a clear bead on the real thing, I mean on the pleasures of reading and encouraging and being encouraged by writing of the first order. I still recall one of the poems published back then by Ira Sadoff, which began, I read the papers and weep. I give the finger to the president. Certainly these lines meet Pound's criteria for literature as news that stays news. <laughs> I left Antioch before Robert Fogarty took over the review. And fortunately, my fellow judges didn't think my ties posed any insuperable conflict. So it is my pleasure to present him with the Penn Nora Maggot Award, which was founded, as you've heard already, by Penn member Gerald Wheels, who is with us tonight, in memory of the late Nora Maggot, for many years literary editor of The Reporter, honoring the editor of a literary journal or general interest magazine whose literary tastes and high standards have made that publication outstanding. And the official citation, which you have before you, reads as follows. Found in libraries from Delhi to Dresden, Dublin to Dubuque, Boston to Beijing, the Antioch Review embodies both the continuing vitality of the literary magazine as a species and the humanistic interests for which this journal stands. Founded in 1941 by a small group of faculty at Antioch College in Yellow Springs, Ohio, the review in its seventh decade remains surprising, 
not least because during its tenure in the Academy, it has never become academic. Over the years, its contributors have included Eric Bentley, Carrie McWilliams, John Dewey, Ralph Ellison, David Reisman, Daniel Bell, Clifford Geertz, Sylvia Plath, Mark Strand, and Alan Shoes. Run initially by a collective in the 60s, the review came under the sway of a series of influential editors from Paul Bixler to Lawrence Grauman, each of whom reinvented the magazine, keeping it responsive to the ever-changing American moment. Since 1977, that charge has been brilliantly led by Robert Fogarty, whose tireless editorial commitment supports the widely held suspicion that the secret center of American publishing is in fact in Ohio. It is our honor to present him with the Penn Nora Maggot Award for magazine editing for 2003. The center is actually in Brooklyn. Um, first, I'd like to uh, thank Penn, the committee, and Gerald Wheelis, who made this unique ward possible. And in Yellow Springs, our staff of one, Michelle Giguere. Second, I would like to reiterate what Arnold Gingrich said an editor ought to be proud of, namely, catching writers on the upbounce. The Antioch Review has been doing that for over 60 years whether the writer was 20 or 70, whether they had been published five books or none, whether they had an agent or not, whether they were fashionable or not. And we will continue to do so and survive in these hard times. Thank you very much. This year's Children's Literature Award is the Penn Phyllis Naylor Working Writer Fellowship of $5,000, established two years ago by Penn member and children's writer Phyllis Reynolds Naylor. The award was developed to recognize the fact that for some gifted authors of children's fiction work, work that is of high literary caliber may not achieve sales allowing the writer to support himself or herself solely from writing. The Penn Naylor Working Writer Fellowship seeks to provide a measure of financial sustenance which can make possible an extended period of time to complete a book-length work in progress and to assist a writer at a crucial moment in his or her career. Elizabeth Winthrop, one of this year's judges, uh, will present the award. Ms. Winthrop. First, I would like to thank Phyllis Reynolds Naylor for her great generosity in endowing this award, and I'm happy to say that she is also here with us tonight. Uh, without Phyllis, those of us working in the field of children's literature would not be represented on this stage. And without the work that we do, I would humbly like to say that none of you would have an audience because we bring children to books early, we hope, and we make lasting readers of them. Secondly, I'd like to thank my fellow judges, Joanna Hurwitz and Erica Tamar, who were a pleasure to work with. And we are all delighted to present the 2003 Phyllis Naylor Working Writer Fellowship to Franny Billingsley, who I know 
from my own travels brings children to books early and keeps them there. So I'd like to read the citation. Franny Billingsley is the author of two highly acclaimed novels, Well Wished and The Folk Keeper, which won the Boston Globe Horn Book Award for Fiction. In her forthcoming book, The Black Mountains, Billingsley draws us swiftly into a world of intrigue and folklore as the protagonist, Jade, makes the mistake of stealing a priest's purse in order to feed Eldrick, her mute younger brother. Eldrick is endowed with the gift of healing, and the priest has been sent by the Earl of Lynn to find just such a healer to serve that domain in the Northlands called the Black Mountains. Billingsley possesses her own special gift for weaving poetic language and memorable characters into that age-old battle of children defending themselves against the elements, be they natural or human. After reading the first three chapters of this work in progress, the judges find her to be a promising writer whose rich storytelling voice and prodigious imagination will, we hope, delight readers for years to come. Franny. It was March 13th, about 5.30, and I was in our kitchen wondering what to do about dinner, for which, as usual, I had made zero provision, when the phone rang and Elizabeth Winthrop was on the phone saying that I had won the Phyllis Naylor writing, Working Writer Fellowship. And talk about going from the mundane to the sublime. I was stunned and thrilled. And I have to start off by thanking Elizabeth and her fellow judges for reading my submission and making that fabulous phone call. Thanks to Penn for making this all happen. Many thanks to you, Phyllis, who is here tonight for your incredible generosity in establishing and funding this award. It was a tremendous boost to me. Thanks to my publisher, Simon & Schuster, who brought me here tonight. I'm from Chicago, and because I am not as peripatetic as, say, a John Guare, I am happy to be here, and for celebrating with me, and generally for your magnificent support of me. And finally, I have to thank my editor, Dick Jackson, who is also in the audience tonight. It was he who submitted my name for this award, and as you all know, the judges have to read some of your work for, to consider you for this award, and so I was forced to relinquish to Dick three chapters of my novel in progress, which was hard for me and which I would not otherwise have done. Dick read them and he called me up and he asked me amazing and insightful questions, which have allowed me to chart my course through to the end of this novel, which four months ago I could not do. And had I not relinquished the chapters to Dick, I still could not do. So this award has brought some unexpected joys and benefits as well as the expected ones. Thank you so much. I am thrilled and I am honored to be here and to have received this award. And just briefly, finally, back to that evening of March 13th, in case any of you was worried about dinner, my family was delighted and in order to celebrate, we ended uh, up by ordering takeout. Thank you so much.
the next group of awards call attention to some of our most promising younger writers. Uh, first of our Emerging Writer Awards this year is the Penn Joyce Osterweil Award for Poetry, a $5,000 prize given in odd-numbered years to recognize an American poet of special promise. The award is not necessarily key to the publication of a book since candidates for the award may have as yet published poetry only in literary journals and anthologies. And in fact, the maximum accomplishment a candidate may have is one published book uh, in order to win this award. Uh, it is my pleasure to introduce one of this year's judges, Paul Muldoon, uh, 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 also this year's winner of the Pulitzer Prize for Poetry, who will present the award, Paul Muldoon. Well, it's a pleasure on behalf of my fellow judges, Tony Hoagland and Susan Wheeler, to present this award to Dana Levin for her collection in the Surgical Theatre. And I'll read the uh, piece that we wrote about this uh, wonderful book. The title of Dana Levin's in the Surgical Theatre neatly points to two of the most winning aspects of this winning book. There is, first and foremost, the meticulousness with which Dana Levin approaches every subject, every aspect of the poem, a meticulousness which would not be lost uh, on a surgeon, as, as you can see, I'm losing my sight, so there's no future for me in the surgery business. There is, moreover, a profound dramatic gift at work here, as in the opening of the title poem, in the moment between the old heart and the new, two angels gather at the empty chest. And this debut signals the arrival of a talent that promises depth and durability, and the chest there is less a thorax than a thesaurus overflowing with riches. Alas, Dana Levin is not able to be here this evening to accept the award, so I'm going to step to one side of myself and accept it on her behalf. And I do know that she's delighted to receive it. Thank you. The next Emerging Writer Award is the Penn Gerard Fund Award. Um, and I'm honored to introduce one of this year's jurors, the biographer and music historian Maynard Solomon, who will present the award. The Biennial Penn Gerard Fund Award was established in 1979 to recognize outstanding works of nonfiction by women writers in the early stages of their careers. Uh, I'm very happy to be here, especially so since today uh, I have the privilege of announcing on behalf of my fellow jurors, Morris Dickstein, Svetlana Alpers, Rosanna Warren, and, and Betty Jean, Betty Jean Lifton, that the award goes uh, to Rachel Cohen. I'll read the citation. Rachel Cohn's A Chance Meeting is a multi-biographical narrator that gracefully navigates the currents and eddies of a century of American writing. There are many chance meetings here, 
and Cohen's sharply etched descriptions of encounters between arriving and departing figures in the caravan of writers who shaped our literary traditions. In the end, as the Jameses, Whitman, Howells, Du Bois, Mark Twain, Sarah Orne Jewett, and many others cross paths, each is forever marched, marked by these interactions. Chance has somehow been transformed into permanence and inevitability. Luminous, discerning, written with rare generosity and sensitivity, a chance meeting is a unique study of the relationships that bind writers together, illuminating the sense of their participation in an ongoing and momentous collaborative enterprise. Please welcome Rachel Cohen. Thank uh, Maynard Solomon for his kind words, and the other members of the committee, Svetlana Alpers, Morris Dickstein, B.J. Lifton, and Rosanna Warren, for their uplifting vote of confidence. My gratitude also to everyone at Penn. I'm honored to be in this company. And to Eric Simonoff, and to Eileen Smith, to Justin Richardson, Peter Parnell, Beth Schachter, Alice Quinn, and Amy Cohen. I didn't know the work of Elise Girard, can you hear me? Uh, until I had this good fortune. She was an environmentalist in her research and her philanthropy. And in the broad human sense, one that has also been important to me in my own project, she thought that each person grows up out of an environment of influences. To write of someone is to try to stay aware of these influences. To support his or her work is to transform that environment altogether. I hope that when she founded this award, Ms. Girard knew what a profound effect the gift would have on a writer finishing her first book. I'm very grateful. Thank you. The next group of awards uh, recognize, recognizes books of nonfiction essays and memoirs published in the previous calendar year of exceptional literary character. The first, the Penn Martha Albrand Award for first nonfiction is a $1,000 prize given to honor an American writer's first book of general nonfiction. Uh, I will just uh, stop here to say to you that the 1994 winner of this prize, uh, uh, the late Michael Kelly, who died tragically at the outset of the war in Iraq, uh, won uh, for his marvelous book about the first Gulf War, Martyr's Day Chronicle of a small war, and we mourn uh, the loss of this extraordinary uh, journalist and editor also. This year's prize will be presented by novelist, story writer, poet, and essayist Lynn Sharon Schwartz. Hello, it's a pleasure to be here giving this, uh, this, this award. Um, my fellow judges are Carol Brightman and Robert Richardson. Uh, we spent many happy hours in conference calls <laughs> at Penn's expense discussing these books, which are indeed, the, the, the entries are indeed of exceptional literary character, as Ben said. Um, we had such a good time that after a while it devolved into how would you like the part where, uh, can you all hear me? You can hear me now. Uh, the finalists for the award are Judith Hooper 
for Of Moths and Men, an Evolutionary Tale, Atul Gawande for Complications, a Surgeon's Notes on an Imperfect Science, and Elizabeth Gilbert for The Last American Man. The citations for these books are in the program, and I believe that Judith Hooper is here. If you're here, will you stand up? Is somebody standing? The Martha Albrand Award for First Nonfiction goes to Daniel Wilkinson, author of Silence on the Mountain, Stories of Terror, Betrayal, and Forgetting in Guatemala. Uh, before I read the, uh, the citation, I just want to mention that um, this, uh, when, when I received my box of several dozen books, uh, this was the first book that I read. <laughs> it must have been a good omen. Uh, there were books that I had heard about and books that I was eager to read and books that I was not so eager to read, but I knew I had to read. And I decided to begin, in all fairness, with a book that I knew nothing about. I hadn't heard of the book, the author, and I didn't know much about the subject. And I was immediately entranced, and then I read the others, and some were wonderful. But I remained entranced, and, and the fellow, my fellow judges agreed. Uh, the citation for Silence on the Mountain is, Daniel Wilkinson's superb book, Silence on the Mountain, about Guatemala's recent decades of bloody civil strife, is honored by the Penn Martha Albrand Award for its compelling dramatic narration and its patient unraveling of a tangled story never fully told before. What makes Mr. Wilkinson's writing so memorable is his literary passion tempered by restraint and his fervent involvement informed by modesty. Always bent on understanding conflicting motives, he has coaxed words from plantation workers once too intimidated to speak, as well as from reticent guerrilla fighters and army officers. As a result, Silence on the Mountain has the seductive allure and vivid characters of the finest fiction and the penetration of the most elegant journalism. Mr. Wilkinson's painstaking work has crucial lessons for our government's future role, not only in Latin America, but in the entire world. Above all, his book serves literature's deepest impulse to bring forth truth out of silence. The most practical advice you could give a young person who's hoping to publish a book and is writing about a place like Guatemala uh, would be, I think, choose another topic. Um, I was very fortunate that the people around me when I was writing this uh, did not give me much practical advice. Um, instead, they gave me uh, support and encouragement, which I definitely needed to, to write this book. Chief among those supporters was my wife, Patricia, uh, which is why the book's dedicated to her. Um, I was also very, very fortunate to find a great agent, Tina Bennett, and a great editor, Anton Mueller, who decided to go to bat for this book despite or maybe because of the topic. Uh, I think all of these people share my belief that um, now, uh, perhaps more than ever, it's a good thing for Americans to read about uh, the impact that our foreign policy has had in places like Guatemala. So I want to thank them, and I want to thank the judges 
uh, for honoring the book in this way. Thank you. The Penn Martha Albrand Award for the Art of the Memoir is also a $1,000 award given to the author of a literary memoir in order to acknowledge the vitality of this genre. Poet and memoirist Mark Doty will present this year's award. Mark. With my fellow judges, Catherine Harrison and Amy Hempel, uh, I read indeed a vital and stimulating field of memoir published this year. And we were delighted to choose uh, two finalists. They are Tad Zielkowski for On a Wave and Carolyn Slaughter for Before the Knife, Memories of an African Childhood. And if they are here this evening, I'd like to invite them to stand and be noticed. The winner of this year's Penn Martha Albrand Prize for the Art of the Memoir is Rick Moody for The Black Veil. About this book, we said, the best memoirs are social histories as well as personal testaments. But Rick Moody's The Black Veil takes the form a step further by linking a chronicle of struggle with depression and substance abuse to a broader current of guilt and shame in American history a furious legacy so profound as to shape our national consciousness. This headlong book, written with an obsessive attention to the delineation of psychological states, anatomizing nuances of feeling, seeks and finds in the life of a contemporary New Yorker, the inheritance of ancestry, the black veil of Nathaniel Hawthorne's short story, and the dark traces of Moody's lineage. This brilliant, indelible, and troubling performance extends the range of American memoir. Rick Moody is this evening on his honeymoon in New Zealand, but he sends us these words. My heartfelt thanks go to everyone at Penn for the honor and surprise of this award, to Joel Canaro, Mike Roberts, Ben Taylor, and to the awards committee, and my apologies for missing the ceremony. I have a really good excuse. The Black Veil was a difficult book to write, both from a professional and an emotional standpoint. And it never would have been finished if not for the selflessness of a number of close friends. First among them Mary Beth Hughes, Mary Robeson, Jill Rubin, the Reverend Jack Moody, my research assistant Kathleen Bell, and my wife Amy Osborne. Michael Peach did the manuscript much good and believed in it unreservedly, as did the sales and publicity departments and everyone at Little Brown. Melanie Jackson worked tirelessly on my behalf and buoyed me up during periods when the news was a burden. But my keenest debt is to my family, my parents, my brother Dwight, and my late sister Meredith Moody. I can't imagine it was easier reading about all of this 15 years later. Still, I would never have written The Black Veil nor anything else if not for the belief of my parents, Hi Moody and Peggy Davis, in books, in creativity, and in the efficacy of ambition. This award truly belongs to them. The final award of the evening is the $5,000 
Penn Spielvogel Diamondstein Award for the Art of the Essay, which was established in 1990 through the generosity of Barbara Lee Diamondstein and Carl Spielvogel to honor surpassing excellence in the art of the essay. Uh, this year's award will be presented by biographer and literary critic, Brenda Wineapple. Hi. On behalf of my fellow judges, Arthur Danto and David Quammen, I'd like to congratulate the finalists for this award tonight. Um, Arthur Crystal uh, for Agitations, Essays on Life and Literature, and Lewis Lapham, Theater of War. I believe that Arthur Crystal is here tonight, and I certainly hope so. Um, is the inside agitator here? Congratulations. Um, the winner of this particular award uh, brings honor to the award just as uh, the award brings honor to him and echoing Professor Keene, I would say myself, where would we be without William Gass? Um, to read the citation then, with pleasure and gratitude, we're proud to present William Gass with the Penn Spiegel Vogel Diamondstein Award for his incantatory collection of essays, Test of Time, which already passes the test of time it so occasionally invokes. The brio of its writing, concrete and celebratory, and the freshness of its varied ruminations, always an astonishment, continuously remind the reader that words, sentences, and paragraphs, each and all, can make something excellent of the world. For Tests of Time represents William Gass's broadly comic vision delivered here with the heart and ear and wide open mind of an original talent who audaciously pushes back against the losses of history with the compensations of language fully felt. It is my pleasure and an honor to present uh, this award to William Gass. To essay is to try, which gives all of our writing the status of an essay. Efforts that go for broke, but break before they get there. Wings that weigh not the weights, but the ones who weigh them. Writings wearied by their revisions, although they are meant to seem freshly daisied, free and easy. Prose in pain that is supposed to smile. When Thomas Mann looked up at the 1,200-page pyramid he had been the only slave for, he wondered, although he was already a Nobel laureate, how posterity would view this work he'd called Joseph and his brothers. Will it soon become a dust-covered curio for antiquarians the easy prey of fleeting time. And Jane Austen, writing to her aunt Cassandra, Cassandra, who has just praised Pride and Prejudice, confesses her fears about its merits in terms that merit should delight to hear applied. 
The work is rather too light and bright and sparkling. It wants shade. It wants to be stretched out here and there with a long chapter of sense, if it could be had, if not of solemn, specious nonsense, about something unconnected with the story, an essay on writing, a critique on Walter Scott, or the history of Bonaparte, or anything that would form a contrast and bring the reader with increased delight to the playfulness and <coughs> epigrammatism of the general style. Yes, Miss Austin, your error is that you only too uh, readily come straight to the point when what the reader wishes for is a little on Walter Scott to lengthen the moment. Uh, but they knew, they know, don't they? the hugely gifted ones. They glow with knowing. It is all the light they need. And Mann goes on after registering his doubts to restore his own faith in himself, for who is more qualified to believe in God than the godlike Lord of Lubbock? His work shall pass the test of time as if time were no more an obstacle than an Amish buggy. What is it that has helped many a product of human hands, he writes, through the ages, given its strength to resist the centuries and restrained mankind in its wildest days from destroying it. Only one thing, the answer comes, quality. The Song of Joseph, he says, is good solid work done out of that fellow feeling for which mankind has always been sensitively receptive. A measure of durability is, I think, inherent in it. Yes, certainly, if, if, if the quality is there. But what of we lowlies who know we are lowlies in this company? Our assurance is like that check in the mail, not here, though always about to arrive. <laughs> Are we dull stones like Jane Austen's little stretches of boredom that serve the brilliance of the central gems? The likelihood is that we shall not succeed and all our trying will have been in vain. Unfortunately, we shall die in the dark about the worth of our work and never know how well we have actually done. Fortunately, we shall die in the dark about the failure of our efforts, too. Because there is nothing the literary world can say or do, whether it welcomes and awards or derides and neglects, that will really tell us how we fared. Accepting a wonderful award like this should not be permitted, then, to swell the head. <laughs> Yet it is difficult to go on, to essay again and again, working with the best intentions but without guarantees, staring at words which only spell inept, pumping up one's spirit day after day like a punctured tire. So to receive such support from the superiors among my peers allows this essayist, at least while at his desk, the illusion of some previous success 
enables me to essay again, to go on, as if that dark in which we work were lit. Thank you. Before Ben Taylor has the last word, I just want to thank him and his committee for putting together so extraordinary a group of, of juries. Um, an award can only be as strong as the people who choose it, and I think the strength of these awards is a testimony to the extraordinary people who have devoted so many hours uh, to making sure that we did have wonderful awards. Let me say belatedly how pleased I am that Phyllis Naylor is with us, and I welcome her. Um, let me also say that I think it was Jonah who said that things look different from the inside. And I've been president now for something over a year and a half, and the very strong feelings I had about the Pan American Center before I became president have, if anything, uh, been reinforced by the quality of the individuals who are at the Penn American Center, making sure that things go smoothly. Um, I want to thank all of you for being here. I want to congratulate all the winners. And I'd like to recognize someone who is something of an unsung hero, and that is Michael Roberts, who is the executive director of Penn and whose contribution is absolutely extraordinary. He didn't know I was going to do this. He will fuss at me afterwards, no end. But Mike, would you please stand so that we may recognize your wonderful work. I'd like in closing to thank all the presenters and to congratulate all the finalists and award recipients. Uh, a reception will now take place in the gallery until 9, uh, 9 p.m. And <laughs> it's going to be a very long party. And uh, we hope you'll stay on and enjoy yourselves. Thank you very much. <laughs>